Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist Church of Flushing. We're so glad that you're here and that you're able to join us for worship today. Will you rise and join us in praising God today? Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. For He is good, He is above all things. His love endures forever. Sing praise. Sing praise. Sing with a mighty hand. With a mighty hand. An outstretched arm, his love endures forever. For the life that's been reborn, his love endures forever. Sing praise, sing praise, sing
is the kingdom, this is the kingdom of heaven, ask and he will, ask and he
is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. This is the kingdom of heaven. Ask and he Good morning, saints of God. Yeah, this is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. Ask, and he will. He sure will. Thank God for the praise and worship team. We bless the Lord. Now let's quiet our hearts before the Lord, before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the King of glory. Let's just take a moment to quiet ourselves before we enter the throne room. God or Heavenly Father. Permit me to read just uh, three verses of Hebrews chapter 4, that is verses 14, 15, and 16. And this is what the Word of God says. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And the last verse says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us look to the Lord. Let us approach the throne of grace. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you boldly, Lord, but humbly before your throne of grace to really seek mercy, Lord, the mercy that has kept us through, through 2023 and through this day, almost the end of the first month of 2024. 
Lord, it is your grace and it is your mercy that has kept us. Lord, the trials might have been many, but your grace and your mercy and your blessing has carried us through. Father, Lord, uh, as we look to you, God, we praise you, Lord, and we thank you. We love you, Lord, but we love you because you first loved us. You love us so much, Father God, that you gave your only begotten son to die for us, die a cruel death, a death of a criminal, death on a cross. Lord, for this reason, Lord, we bow our knees before you. We bow our hearts lower than our knees, Lord. And we lift up our thoughts to you, God, because you are God, the Father of, of all mercies, of all goodness. And we know that, Lord, by your word, all good and perfect gifts come from you. So today, Lord God, we just praise you and thank you. And Father, Lord, we have not been faithful as we ought to. We come before you, Lord, confessing our sins and our misdeeds. Lord, in our best effort, we fall short. We have not done the things that you bid us to do. And we have gone to do the things that we ought not to have done. But Lord, we're so grateful that you said in your word, my little children, I write to you that you sin not. But when you sin, remember, you have an advocate. Thank you, dear Father God. Thank you, Jesus, for your advocacy for us. Had it not been for the Lord who was on our side, what would have happened to us, Lord God? We are so grateful, and we thank you, and we ask for your forgiveness. We ask you for a cleansing. Lord, wash us in the, your blood that we, come, we can become the people you have made us to be. Father, Lord, we're so grateful that you say, come to you with our cares, with our joys, with our sorrow. I pray now, Lord God, for the world at large. Lord, I, in, in Genesis 1 and 31, you said you made this, your creation. And when you were finished, you look around and you said, this is, it was a very good. But Father God, our sins have marred your creation. Lord, we have, we have really marred your creation by our sin, sin of, of hatred the sin of unloveliness, the sin of greed, the sin of selfishness, the sin that brings on wars and rumors of wars. Lord, we are thinking today of the war war in with Ukraine, with Russia. We pray of the war in Israel with Hamas and, and, and even in our own land, Lord God. There's so much unrest, so much hatred, so much unloveliness. Oh, Prince of Peace, I ask you, Lord, to intervene in all the unrest of your creation that you made so beautiful and you said it was good. And it is good because there's nothing you make that was not good. Father God, we lift up our hearts to you for our brothers and sisters in those areas of turmoil. Lord God, we know that peace will come. But until then, Father God, until the Prince of Peace appears again the second time, Lord God, I pray, Lord, that you would grant mercy to all those leaders, grant them the heart to seek peace and pursue it, because that's your will, God. 
Father, I just lift up all these concerns to you, Lord. Now, Father God, we pray for our church here, the body of Christ here at First Baptist Church. I lift up our leaders to you. We lift up our pastors and their families. Lord God, we pray that you may undergird them with your, your strength, the strength that you give. Lord, we pray that you may uphold them and grant them the desires of their heart for your glory, Lord. We pray, Lord, that they will have the strength to lead and to lead us uh, so that we may catch a glimpse of who you are. Lord, I pray also for the deacons, the trustees, the co-workers, all the ministries, the children's ministry, the youth ministry, Lord, and every, every area, every facet of this body, God, that named your name, that work in your vineyard for you. We also pray, Lord, and lift up all the missionaries here at home and abroad. And some, Lord, are in hostile territories. But, Lord, we know that you are a protector. You are a shield and you are a defender. And so, Lord, we pray that you will guide them and guard them and encourage their hearts wherever you have placed them. Father, Lord, lastly, but not least by no means, Lord, we lift up your servant, Pastor Gary, who will bring us a word from you out of your word. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you will be with Pastor Gary. Be his mouthpiece, Lord. Speak through him, Lord God. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on Pastor Gary while he brings us this message. We need to hear from you, God, because we love you and we want to hear from you. Father, Lord, I grant us all these mercies. And when everything is over, Lord, we pray that you, Father God, will be glorified, magnified, and we, your people, will be blessed and edified and ready to work and do your will wherever you are, you have placed us. We pray for all these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Amen, amen. and amen. I have one announcement, and this is the announcement. The youth, the youth young team service has been canceled for today, so you will remain with us. Thanks. Hello, my name is uh, Vicki. Uh, when I was a high school student, I felt like something was missing from my life. It was like there was a hole in my heart. Uh, I didn't know what it was, and it was something was wrong with me. During the summer, I'd sleep the day away. Um, it seemed like a normal teenage behavior, but I knew it was not. Today, it might be diagnosed uh, with depression. The following school year, my friend took me to church. I knew right then that it was uh, um, was missing. Um, the sermon uh, was like a ray of sunlight in my perpetually cloudy day. I knew that the, the Jesus, the Jesus the pastor was talking about, was the love that I needed in my life. 
Um, and I accepted Jesus into my heart right away. Instead of an emptiness and darkness, my, my heart was now filled with light and a wondrous hope. I found and felt peace that I'd never known before. However, for various reasons, um, you can come talk to me about it later if you want. <laughs> I couldn't go to church, and so my face was put on hold for a number of years. But now looking back, I see God was pursuing me the whole time. I, I'd find um, numerous C.S. Lewis books in my library. I, I didn't have any interest at all in it, but I don't know why I bought it. Um, and my library, uh, and I also had a Christian friend um, who shared the gospel with me multiple times. Um, but you know what? This is true for all of us. Uh, he, I'm not in any way special. God pursues each and every one of us. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not per perish but have eternal life. God sent Jesus to die for us as payment for our sins, so, so that we might be called sons and daughters of God if we accept him into our lives. Many years later, I returned to, to church, but God did not leave me alone as I was. I was diagnosed with stage three nasopharyngeal cancer, and my third child wasn't even one yet. I felt like it was a death sentence. I cried and felt lost. God gifted me, though, with a guide. My pastor and his wife had gone down the same road, and they directed me to doctors who were excellent in their craft. Then, when it was time for me to go through the most difficult part of my treatment, I thought, who would care for the kids as I homeschooled, and also my little one? COVID hit, and uh, so that my husband was able to work from home and um, for the rest of the treatment. With six months of chemo and radiation, God was with me, and his protection and his strength was with me. I'm now cancer-free for three years plus. God is amazing. What this whole ordeal taught me was, um, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is from Isaiah 55, 8-9. Who knows why we suffer and go through things that we do? What I do know is God is above all things. He is sovereign over all. Also, he has promised for those who love him his very presence. It says in Matthew 28, 20, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, the one who controls all things and loves you with all of, all of his everything has extended an open hand to every one of us. Will you accept his offer? This, today's scripture reading is taken from Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 2, and Matthew 5, verses 3 to 10. Come, all you who are thirsty, Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. We've got to do something about that. <laughs> Nutritionists tell us that our appetite determines our diet, our diet determines our intake, and our intake determines our health. In other words, you are what you, what you eat. And this is true in the spiritual realm. And with the very penetrating words of the fourth beatitude, Jesus challenges us to look at our spiritual appetite. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A short prayer, and then we'll get right to work. Father, as your word is about to be proclaimed, I pray that you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts, and that you would help us to receive your word implanted deep within, where it's able to do that good work of salvation and sanctification. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting with us today, I want you to know that, uh, one, you're welcome, and number two, we are in the middle of a series on the Beatitudes, those eight statements that Jesus makes at the beginning of the most famous sermon that he ever preaches, the Sermon on the Mount. And these Beatitudes describe the kind of people who are in the family of God, the family of Christ. Jesus is not talking here about your, your Myers-Briggs. He's not talking about your natural temperament. He says this is the type of life that can only happen by being his disciple, by being close to him, by belonging to, to his kingdom. And so these are not eight different types of people. Some are meek, others are merciful, one or two are pure in heart. Rather, they are the characteristics of his adopted sons and daughters. And these beatitudes come like a bolt out of the blue for those who think of religion as kind of a, a sad and, and miserable sort of affair. Now maybe religion is, is that way. We know that uh, Billy Joel thought so, right? What did he sing in that song? I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Now, in my past life, I did laugh with the sinners, but I can tell you I never cried with the saints. And that's because the kingdom of God is quite different. Christianity is inevitably the, the happy life. And that's what the word blessed means. It means made happy by God. But not happiness as we use that word. When we talk about happiness, it's an emotional thing. It's an emotion. Uh, it's the opposite of sadness. So you, you get a new job, and you're happy. You get a promotion on that job, you're very happy. You have a beautiful, healthy baby, you're extremely happy. Pastor Gary preaches a short sermon, you're very happy. <laughs> You'll be sad today. <laughs> but how many of us would say, happy are you when you're persecuted? Well, we wouldn't say that because we're not masochists. The idea of blessed or blessed is a deeper reality. 
Jesus is saying that life in his kingdom is a life of profound joy, a joy that no person or circumstance can take away. It is the mark of those who have surrendered their lives to the king and tasted his grace and belong to his kingdom. And so these are kingdom attitudes. These are kingdom virtues. And that's really the significance of verse 1, where it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and his disciples came to him. And that's meant to draw our attention back to Moses. In Exodus 19, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law from God to give to the people of God. And now Moses' great successor ascends a different mountain to transmit to his disciples the law of this new kingdom. And so we have a new law for a new people given on a new mountain by a new Moses for a new kingdom. This is about the kingdom. And you see that just in the structure of the Beatitudes. Notice how the Beatitudes, these eight statements, are, are bookended. In verse 3, the first Beatitude, it says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, the end of the last Beatitude, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These, these Beatitudes, they are bookended like that. Jesus is describing life in his kingdom. He says, this is what your life will look like in increasing measure if you're mine, if you belong to my kingdom, if you're in my family. And Jesus singles out no fewer than eight aspects of the character and conduct of citizens of his kingdom. And this morning we're going to unpack the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if this is your first Sunday of the year with us, or if you've not been around the last few weeks, you need to go to our website. And you need to listen to the, the first three sermons in this series that Pastor Aaron preached because those sermons are wonderful and they will give you the full content of what we're seeing in this sermon. Now, I'd like you to notice three things about this beatitude. And all the beatitudes have almost the same type of outline, the righteousness that we seek, the way we seek it, and the reward it brings. Okay, so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is this righteousness that we're supposed to seek? Now, a lot of people read this verse and they, they draw into it what's not there. So in Paul's letters, when you read Romans and Galatians, righteousness refers to the righteousness of Christ, which God reckons or imputes or credits to us by faith. He credits that to the believer's account, even as God reckons our sin to Jesus Christ. And what a marvelous truth that is. That's legal righteousness, or what theologians call forensic righteousness, or declarative righteousness in the very courtrooms of heaven, that we have been declared righteous before God solely based on the righteousness of Christ alone. And that's how Paul uses the word righteousness all throughout Romans. And so in that case, righteousness is almost synonymous with salvation. So the verse would read, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for salvation. And while that's a, a true statement, that's not what Jesus is saying. In verse 1, Jesus is addressing his disciples, his, his followers. And this reality is behind everything you read in the Beatitudes. So it's a different righteousness we're to crave. Some people read this verse and almost unconsciously they, they substitute the word God for righteousness. And so when you read this verse, it reads to you as though it says this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God. And I think the reason we do that is because the Psalms are filled with that sort of thing. So in Psalm 63, 
O God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Or Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you. My soul thirsts for the living God. But that's not what this verse is saying either. It's not a thirst for salvation or forensic righteousness. It's not a thirst even for God. And that becomes clear as you read on in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to understand the meaning of a word, well, you just look at how the word is used in its immediate and surrounding context. And the word righteousness occurs five times in the Sermon on the Mount. So when Jesus talks about righteousness, and you'll see that in a moment, he's talking about holiness. He's talking about growing in holiness and righteousness as a believer. So let's just briefly look at some of these uh, verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Down in verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the eighth and final beatitude. And so if you take the fourth and the eighth beatitudes together, we get something like this. We're to hunger and thirst for the kind of life that will cause some people to persecute us for our faith. They're persecuted, but why? Because they're living for Jesus. They're following Jesus. They're speaking as Jesus spoke, and they're living as Jesus lived. And if they persecuted Jesus for those things, Jesus says, rest assured, they'll persecute you as well. Verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees, those, those kind of religious green berets back in the first century in Israel, their righteousness involved external rules and regulations and traditions. And if you know anything about those guys, they were scrupulous. And it was almost a checklist for them, right? Don't commit murder. Check. Don't commit adultery. Check. No divorce except for adultery. Check. That was their religion. Their religion was like splashing on cheap cologne to make yourself smell good. It's not really a part of you, and it can never cover the odor underneath, but it smells nice in a middle school sort of way. And Jesus says here that the believer's righteousness must exceed that. Well, so how do you exceed such a scrupulous righteousness? Well, in the rest of chapter 5, he shows us how our righteousness surpasses the law keepers of the day. So notice what he says in the rest of chapter 5. He says we must not only not kill, but more, we must not sustain anger against a brother but seek peace. So how about that one, Mr. Pharisee? No check. We must not only not commit physical adultery, but we must not even look upon a person lustfully. And even more than that, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. How about that, Mr. Pharisee? If Jesus were speaking to us today, he'd probably say, if your laptop causes you to sin, install blocking software, and if that doesn't work, throw it away. But pastor, it's a MacBook Pro M3. I'm just the messenger. Verse 31. We should not condone divorce just because there's a legal provision for it in the Old Testament. We should surpass the righteousness that makes peace with hardness of heart and strive to keep our covenant commitment. Jesus says, this is the righteousness you are to pursue. So true righteousness starts in the heart and changes the person from the inside out. And so Christianity then is an inside out religion. Pastor Aaron referred to it as an upside-down faith, and now we find out it's also an inside-out religion. 
Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Beware of practicing it. In other words, righteousness is something we do. We are to hunger and thirst for the holiness of God to be expressed in our lives and to be expressed in our churches. D.A. Carson, great theologian, he writes this. He says, those who have studied Matthew's use of the term increasingly recognize that righteousness here means a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. The person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness echoes the prayer of a certain Scottish saint who cried, O God, make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. And so after gaining from Christ his righteousness by faith, after being wrapped in the the beautiful righteous robes of Jesus and being declared righteous in heaven's court, you will begin to love the things that he loves. You will begin to long to do the things that he has called you to do. And your desire to be free from the unrighteousness that remains in you will become stronger and stronger. And you will actually grieve the old patterns that, that still govern you. And see, all of that is kind of wrapped up here in the fourth beatitude. In fact, this is so basic and normative to to Christian living that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's written more and in greater detail than anyone on the Beatitudes, he makes this very uh, cutting statement. He says, I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture you could be quite certain that you are a Christian. If it is not, then you would better examine the foundations again. So this is what we're to crave. Now, before we move on to the next point, I just want to tell you why Jesus is telling us to hunger and thirst for righteousness and not simply telling us to hunger and thirst for God, which is all over the Psalms. See, near the end of this sermon, right before the end, Jesus Uh, says this, and these are some of the the scarier words of the Sermon on the Mount. I think this is Matthew 7, maybe 22. He says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evil doers. Isn't that something? They they called him Lord. They seemed to have the charismatic gift of prophecy. They were engaged in exorcisms, which is is the casting out of of demonic influences. They worked miracles in Jesus' name. And he turns them away on the last day, saying that he never knew them. Why? Because they were doers of evil and not doers of righteousness. You see, they, they thought they knew him. They thought that he knew them, but they were strangers. Jesus says, I never knew you. Why? Because they had not hungered and thirsted for righteousness. They had been religious. They had gone to church. They had gotten involved in religious activities. They they probably enjoyed some fellowship. But the passion, the hunger, the thirst of their lives was not righteousness, which is the truest evidence that, that one knows the Lord Jesus Christ. So this hungering, thirsting for God can simply be some some vague hunger for some distant deity. I I want some experience with this God who is out there. Jesus is saying, no, the truest test that you're my disciple is that you hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. And therefore, they will not be satisfied, neither in this age nor in the age to come. They looked like believers. They did the works of believers, but they were evildoers. And Jesus says, I don't know you. Now, how are we to seek this righteousness? Well, it's pretty clear. Jesus says we are to hunger and thirst for it. Hunger and thirst. Now, the force of those words is lost on us because for the most part, we've experienced very little hunger. If we're thirsty, we turn the faucets. If we're hungry and the fridge is empty, we call Uber Eats and food is on our doorstep in 15 minutes. For us, to be hungry means waiting 10 minutes for the rolls to come out of the oven or 30 minutes for the preacher to finish his sermon. You would think by the way we storm into the kitchen at the end of the day that we haven't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights. The fact is we are the best fed people on the face of the earth. In fact, our problem is not finding something to eat. It's losing the weight that comes from eating too much. You know that's true. Turn to your neighbor and say, the pastor is talking to me. The people Jesus addressed in that original audience, they understood the metaphor because they knew what it meant to be hungry. They knew what it meant to thirst. See, they they lived on the edge of starvation. They understood a gnawing in their bellies. The Near Eastern sun can turn your throats to sandpaper. They lived without grocery stores and running waters. They could go days without food. And when they had food, it it was sparse. And so they were well acquainted with these hunger pains. Hunger and thirst speak of an intense desire, an ardent craving, and an all-consuming pursuit. Those who are blessed not only realize there's something that they're lacking, righteousness, but they crave it with all their heart. The hungry ones desire the whole thing, complete righteousness, not just just a part of it, not just a little piece of it. They want the whole thing, and it tears them up internally that they can never be fully righteous. And so this phrase then breathes wholeheartedness. See, these are the ones who are actually blessed by God. And the question is, does it describe you? In 1971, Wilbur Rees wrote a book pretty well known uh, in in Christian circles, called $3 Worth of God. $3 Worth of God. Let me just read an excerpt. It says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. You could see when this was written. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Now, none of us, I'm sure, would ever be so unrefined as to put it that way. I've never heard a Christian actually say anything like that. But many of us at times have have at least felt the desire, had the temptation to opt for a less demanding, more domesticated version of, of the gospel. The blessed ones, according to Jesus, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a, it's a desperate kind of hunger. It's a, it's a desperate thirst. Are you desperate for righteousness? On July 30th, 1945, the, this is the end of World War II, the USS Indianapolis was returning from a mission in the Pacific when they were torpedoed, and the ship sank immediately. 
In 12 minutes, 300 of the 1,200 men died. The other 900 went into the sea for four days and five nights without food, without water, under the blazing sun of the Pacific. And of those 900, only 316 survived. And one was the chief medical officer, and here's what he writes about that experience. He says, there was nothing I could do but give advice, bury the dead at sea, save the life jackets, and try to keep the men from drinking the seawater. When the hot sun came out and we were in this crystal clear ocean, we were so thirsty, so thirsty. You couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men they shouldn't drink. The real young ones would drink the salt water and they would go fast. I can remember striking the ones who were drinking the salt water to try to stop them. They'd get so dehydrated that they'd become maniacal. There were mass hallucinations. Even I fought the hallucinations off and on, but something kept bringing me back. And you see, that's the, the kind of thirst that Jesus is talking about that should be evident in our lives, in our hearts, in our soul as believers in Christ, this intense longing. The joy, the blessing, the satisfaction comes to those who are starving, starving, not for some vague blessing from on high, not for some spiritual ecstatic experience. They're not hungering for fellowship or a retreat or a conference, as, as wonderful as all those things are, but for complete conformity to the will of God in body, in mind, in spirit, personally and corporately, in my private life and in my public life. And notice what he says here. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. All he seems to be asking for us is that we genuinely long for the holiness of God to take hold of our lives. See, that's where the blessing comes. If we're longing, if we're hungry for it, I think you're, you're all familiar with the phrase, the means of grace. We use that from time to time, the means of grace. And when we use that phrase, we're, we're simply talking about those tried and, and true spiritual disciplines which we practice, which God uses to, to grow us up in our faith. Things like prayer, meditating on Scripture, memorizing Scripture, worship, fasting, things like that. And so it is here. Jesus is not calling us to be Pharisees. He's not calling us to think that after you enter the kingdom by faith, the rest is all about cleaning ourselves up, and only if you're a spick and span clean uh, will he bless you. Now, if that were true, none of us would be blessed. And yet how many of us think that? How many of us think the blessing really comes if we are kind of spick and span righteous and clean and pure and holy and perfect? In fact, if you're reading through the Bible reading plan, you're in Job right now, and this is kind of the, the essence of the counsel of Job's friends. They basically say the reason he's suffering like this is because he's not righteous. And their belief, their theology was, if you're righteous, if you're a good guy, if you're a person of integrity, God will bless you. If you're not, you're going to experience what you're experiencing, Job. And yet Job was the most righteous man in the world. What Jesus is saying here is, desire me, long for me, seek and knock, and I will grow you. We're blessed not for a possessed righteousness, so to speak, but for a desired righteousness. Blessed not because we are as righteous as we ought to be, but because we want it, and we seek for it continually, 
and we're not satisfied until we have it. And we'll do everything in our spiritual power to get it. Christians like that, I believe, are in short supply. Now, these words, hunger and thirst, they are present participles, which our high school students can tell you imply continuous action. You don't stop hungering and thirsting for righteousness once you've crossed the line of faith. You don't kick the hunger habit with just one meal. In fact, hunger is a sign of life. Now, you know this is true in in the physical realm. We've all pulled away from the Thanksgiving table thinking that we could never eat again, right? Have you ever had that experience? You have this amazing meal. There's turkey, there's stuffing, there's all kinds of potatoes, there's some vegetables there. We don't care about those. We want the heavy carbs. And you kind of push away from that table and you say, I'm not going to eat for two weeks. And yet by five o'clock, you're back in the kitchen looking for leftovers. Why is that? Well, because you're not dead, you're alive. And so it is in the Christian life. If we're spiritually healthy, we will have a constant appetite for righteousness. And with that consistent desire, God gives continual filling, but filled, but still hungering. Filled some more, but hungering more. This is the Christian life. So beware of those, and you'll meet them somewhere along the way, who claim to have attained righteousness. I never know how this this belief got off the ground in Christianity, but it did. And there are pockets of Christians who believe it, that you could reach this this state of, of righteousness. Sorry, not true. Beware of those who claim that. Beware of those who look to past experience rather than to looking to future development. Some Christians do that. Oh, man, if you would have seen me five years ago, I was on top of the spiritual game. I was great. I was walking with God. I was holy. I was growing. What about now? Well, not so much. But looking back, look back to the past. Like all the qualities included in the Beatitudes, hunger and thirst for righteousness are perpetual characteristics of the disciple of Jesus. Perpetual as meekness and mourning. See, it's not until we reach heaven that we will hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, for only then will Christ our shepherd lead us to springs of living water. So let me ask you, how's your appetite this morning for the things of God? Are, are you hungering for righteousness? Or have you lost your spiritual appetite? Some of us, I'm afraid, would have to admit, and I think we would all admit this from time to time, honestly, my appetite for spiritual things is lousy these days. I haven't prayed in weeks except at meals. I can't remember the last time I opened the Bible on my own. I've developed a take-or-leave-it attitude about worship. Others think I'm righteous, but my heart is a seething swamp of lust and bitterness. I do what is expedient, not what is in conformity to God's will. I don't love my wife as Christ loves the church. I don't submit to my husband as to the Lord. I do regret my constant sinning, but I don't hate it, and I'm not running from it, and I'm really not craving righteousness. In fact, I've become so comfortable with sin in my life that I no longer feel the, the sting of the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the thumb of the Holy Spirit pressing upon me, convicting me of my wrongdoing. Well, what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, it, means, it could mean two things. It could mean that you're dead, right? Because dead people don't hunger. Spiritually dead people don't hunger for holiness. They just don't. They, they hunger to be better people. They hunger to improve themselves. But they're not hungering for the righteousness of Christ. 
So it could mean you're spiritually dead, or it could mean that you're, you're sick. Saved but sick because sick people don't hunger either. Isn't that true? I had COVID a couple of weeks ago and I lost two pounds. You say, Pastor, it shows. <laughs> if you're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, maybe it's because, maybe it's because you've been nibbling at the table of the world and now your, your soul is stuffed with small things, inconsequential things, things that lack substance, things that might even be really good things, even gifts from God, but are not ultimate things, and they're actually killing your appetite for the things of God. So instead of meditating uh, morning and evening on the scriptures, which is the bread of God, and instead of communing in prayer and fellowship with Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life, two things which would stimulate your hunger for righteousness, you're, you're filling up on junk food. And that junk food is killing your spiritual appetite. If I were to ask you, what is the greatest threat to a Christian's spiritual appetite, what would you say? Now, I think, I think a lot of people would say sin is the, is the big appetite killer. And yes, yeah, sin does kill appetite. But, but for many of us, the greatest threat to our soul is not sin, but some good that God himself has given to us. And John Piper, the great John Piper, offers a perceptive warning in his book, A Hunger for God. It says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. We know well what sin will reap in our lives. Because Galatians tells us, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction, Galatians 6. But we're often far less aware of how dangerous apple pie can be. Think about that. Ask God to, to open your eyes to the, the apple pie in your life and then stop nibbling. Because I think if we would all take a close look at our lives, we would realize that we are, we are consumed with things in this world that are just just eroding our, our spiritual desires. Satan is so crafty, isn't he? We think the problem is, is that big sin over there. And he's got us nibbling on the apple pie over here, and this is what's killing us. And we think we're okay because we're not there, but we're here. The righteousness that we seek, the way we seek, and then finally the reward it brings. The final part of the verse is, is a promise from God. NIV says they will be filled. ESV says they will be satisfied. Well, what will we be filled with? Happiness? That's not it. A perfect family? That's not it. Trouble-free life? Not even close. What then? Three things. Number one, satisfaction for our souls. Deep and lasting satisfaction and contentment comes not from the delights of the world, nor from a merely religious lifestyle. That's why there are a lot of people who come to church, they're, they're casually associated with Christianity, and they're not satisfied. They're still miserable. They're discontent. Satisfaction comes from God to those whose passion in life is to know Christ in the struggle to be like Christ in the world. That's where satisfaction comes from. Listen, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes which says that God has set eternity in our hearts. I think it's Ecclesiastes 3.11. You could check it out and let me know if I'm right or wrong later. God has set eternity in our hearts, which is why we have an inconsolable longing in the first place. 
And really, everybody identifies. Everybody knows, saved, unsaved, Christian, pagan, doesn't matter. We all know that, right? I mean, Bruce Springsteen sang it. Everyone has a hungry heart. But if we try to satisfy that hunger and that longing with scenic vacations, stunning cinematic productions, sexual exploits, national sports extravaganzas, hallucinogenic drugs and alcohol or whatever, the longing will not only remain, but it will intensify. It goes back to that verse in Isaiah that Joy read for us at the beginning. Isaiah 55, 2 and 3. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Jeremiah 2, 12. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Imagine going to the, the pipe to get water and, and your, your, your bucket has like two holes on the side and one on the bottom. You kind of fill it up, you walk back to the house and all the water's gone. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Some of us here this morning are like that. Your soul is hungry. Your heart is thirsty. You feel an insatiable longing for something. You're restless. But almost everywhere you turn, the grass is greener than where you stand because you're hungry for something and you, you think, well, I don't have it here. It must be over there. And so that grass is greener on the other side of the fence. We all dabble in that, some more than others. And the great tragedy for some Christians is that even though this is the Spirit of God beckoning you to himself, you still turn away again and again to short-run, temporary, backfiring pleasures of X-rated videos alcohol, marijuana, or some new toy. And everything turns to ashes in your, your hands. Isn't that true? The thrill of lust leaves the sediment of guilt and lowliness. True? True. Marijuana and alcohol. And I throw marijuana in because all these marijuana shops are opening everywhere. Every time one opens up, a week later, there's another one two stores down. Marijuana, alcohol cannot keep you from waking up in the real world again and again with your messed up relationships. Isn't that why most people turn to those things? Kind of to escape and to find some, some relief, some peace, some satisfaction? That was my whole life before I came to know Christ. It doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. The vacation high quickly fades, and the new toy is so boring in just a few weeks, unless you're a kid, and what? It's boring in a few hours. Kids aren't going to like this next statement, but parents, invest in your kids' college education, not too many random toys. In fact, next, next Christmas, put a 529 plan under the tree. Cut back on some of the toys. Give me a call. Let me know how that works. <laughs> we drink at broken cisterns, and we eat bread that doesn't satisfy. And the words of C.S. Lewis ring more and more true. Lewis said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Profound. What does bring satisfaction? The pursuit of righteousness. The second reward, you will be filled with righteousness in this life. If you want righteousness, you can have it. Not perfection, but increasing righteousness. Why? In Titus 2, 11 and 12, Paul writes this. 
For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say, salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And since the gospel teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will get it because it's God's will that you have it. The Holy Spirit will work in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And then you will find that Christ is living in you and your heart is increasingly becoming his home and you will be able to be more than conqueror over the things that now assail you and control you. Now let me go out on a limb here. Let me make a bold statement. Say, Pastor, you made a few bold statements. Here's another bold statement. Whatever you want in the spiritual realm, you can have it if you want it badly enough. Whatever you want in the spiritual realm, you can have it if you want it badly enough. Most of us probably are about as close to God as we want to be at this moment. For the most part, we are where we are right now spiritually because that's where we want to be. If you are hungry for something better, if you are thirsting for more, if you are craving it, you would pursue it and ask for it and God would grant it to you. Because you're asking him for something, you're craving something that is his expressed will for your life. If you want it, you can have a closer walk with God. If you want it, you can have a better marriage. If you want it, you can do God's will. If you want to, you can break destructive patterns of behavior. I can't tell you how many times I've heard it, you've probably heard it too. How many people who are locked in in some sin say, I can't change, I am what I am, that's all that I am. Not true. Not true. If you stop praying, Lord, forgive me, every time you sin, you say, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me. Kind of like that broken record. And you start praying, Lord, cleanse me and change me, even if it hurts me, and stir up a hatred in my heart for sin, and make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be, Well, look out, because it's coming. And yeah, it might be painful. In fact, I can tell you, it will be painful. But it's coming. And the question is, and the only question is, do you want it? Because if you want it, you can have it. The problem is, we don't want it. We want $3 worth of God. Maybe 5 maybe 10 maybe 100 But we don't want the whole thing. But ultimately, third reward... This promise is fulfilled in eternity. There is a day coming when all who are in Christ will stand before Jesus at that throne in heaven, faultless, blameless, without spot, without wrinkles. A new and perfect man and woman in a new and perfect body filled with a perfect, complete, entire righteousness. Won't that be wonderful? Every feeling in your being in heaven will be for righteousness. Let me close with some good news. Everything begins with a seeking heart. That's what it all comes down to. Salvation begins with a desire to be free and to be forgiven. A desire to find rest for your souls. And so if you're tired of the life you've been living, then come to Jesus and he will fill you. That's his invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. 
I will give you rest. Sanctification, the pursuit of holiness, also begins with a hungry heart. And so that's what a Christian is. One who has been filled with the righteousness of Christ and is therefore justified, but still hungers and thirsts for practical righteousness. And the more he is filled, the more he hungers and thirsts. And the more she hungers and thirsts, the more she is filled. And this will go on until we reach heaven's shores. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, what a challenging beatitude. Not one person in this room stands or sits without conviction before it. Father, we confess that we are not hungering and thirsting for righteousness as we should. We're not craving it as the way a hungry man craves food or a thirsty woman craves water. We've become content with where we are in our Christian lives. We've become comfortable with sin. We've become comfortable watching others run the race with vigor while we kind of sit in the background on the sidelines just nibbling at the, the food of the world while we partake of a little bit of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would address us at the level of our desires this morning. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cultivate, create birth in each one here this morning, each one watching from home, a true hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would begin to pursue the holiness, the holiness without which we will not see you. May you bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. You can rise for the response song. There's honey in the rock, water in the stone, man on the ground, no matter where I go. I don't need a worry now that I know. Everything I need, you've got. There's honey in the rock. Praying for a miracle. Thirsty for the living well. Only you can satisfy. tasted it's not hard to see only you can satisfy there's honey in the rock 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 freedom where the spirit is There's honey in the rock, water in the stone, man on the ground, no matter where I go. I don't need to worry now that I know. And everything I need, you've got. There's honey in the rock, purpose in your plan, power in the blood, healing in your hands. Started flowing when you said it is done. 
Good afternoon, First Baptist. Ooh, a little dead there. Come on. Good afternoon, First Baptist. You sound just like my IP students, uh, 545. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's great to welcome you to First Baptist this uh, Sunday morning. And if you're tuning in at home, welcome. We're so happy to have you with us. Uh, if you are visiting First Baptist for the first time, uh, we want to welcome you with uh, a special Connect card. So if you're new, just raise your hand. Our ushers are walking down the, uh, the aisles with a Connect card. If you could just slip your hand up, our ushers will give you that card. All you need to do is fill out your information and then bring it over to the visitor center, which is to my left, right outside the uh, sanctuary here. And someone will be there to tell you a little bit more about First Baptist and all of the great offerings um, uh, that we have here, ministry-wise, community-wise, and so on. And you'll get a gift for coming. So... Uh, hopefully you have a, a chance to not be shy, but welcome, introduce yourself and be a part of a great church community. Um, why don't we take a moment to greet each other? And since it's game day today, the football teams are showing up. It may, may be into football or not. It's all good. Who are you hoping goes to the Super Bowl? Why don't you ask uh, your neighbor? 
I know about you, but personally, I'm rooting for the Detroit Lions. What a story. Unbelievable story. But we all know what the reality is going to be. 49ers and Taylor Swift, I mean, uh, uh, Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. <laughs> great, great exposure for football fans. No, not, not going to lie, but whatever. Um, <laughs> all right. I'll get back to Earth. Let's go through the announcements real quick. So first things first, we have our annual meeting today at 1230. It's 1225, so probably be pushed back a little bit. But uh, this is open to all FBCF members. Uh, there is an annual report that is ready. Uh, it's outside the sanctuary. If you'd like a copy, you can ask one per family, just a heads up on that. But we will be meeting in the South Sanctuary for that meeting. Uh, next, we have our results with, for the English coworkers for 2024, and all the people that were on the ballot have been uh, elected as coworkers. Uh, Alfredo, Angela, Carol, Ebert, Gabe, Joe, Cena, uh, Melody, Soban, Tabitha, and Vaveen. So why don't we give them a round of applause? Congrats. Uh, we also have our monthly prayer meeting, um, praying the names of God, uh, help being held uh, in room S304 on Saturday, February 17th from 11 a.m. to 1230. If you're able to participate, we'd love to welcome you. Also, we have our 2023 offering receipts available. Um, so if you like, uh, actually, they, they were emailed already. If, if you haven't received them, you can contact Mailing via email for that. But those receipts are available. Um, as always, we have our Monday noon prayer meetings on Zoom. It's a great opportunity to pray for any needs, great or small, in the church community and the world at large. If you'd like to participate, you can contact Pastor Aaron for more details. And lastly, it's mucky weather outside, but why don't we have a nice touch of spring in the sanctuary? Uh, we are, as always, accepting uh, contributions uh, to beautify our sanctuary. It's $25 per week. If you'd like to sign up, you can uh, talk to Angela Lee at the end of service. Uh, the rest of your announcements are in the bulletin, and I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward as we receive this morning's offering. Why don't we pray? Lord, we thank you so much for the Sunday morning. We thank you for... Uh, the, the continued encouragement from our reading of the Beatitudes, God. And Lord, I pray that we can continue to hunger for righteousness, that we can continue to uh, mold our hearts to be in your image. We're not perfect beings, Lord, but we pray that today's sermon can be uh, sort of a start that could allow us to uh, uh, mold ourselves to be uh, servants of you and that we can live out um, for the betterment of your kingdom, Lord. I pray, Lord, for our offering, no matter how big or small our gifts are, I pray, Lord, that it would be a testament of how thankful we are for what you have done in our lives. And we ask all of this in your name. Amen. Not anymore. 
Would you all rise for the benediction? Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. So we're going to sing the last song and we're going to do it a little different. So this could be really great or go horribly wrong, but praise God anyway. So we're going to sing Revelations 19.1. We're going to sing it in unison, and then we're going to kind of put it together all at one time. So if you're going to be singing the low part, the hallelujah self, you're going to go with Eric. Um, and if you're going to be in the mid, if you're in like mid-range and you're, you like the all oh, praises, but you're going to be with Ivana. And then if you like a challenge and you like to go super high in the hallelujah, that's not me, but that'll be Grace. Okay? So we're going to start together with the choruses first, and then I'll let you know when we split. Here we go. Hallelujah, salvation and glory, honor and power to the Lord our God. For the Lord our God is mighty. Yes, the Lord our God is omnipotent. The Lord our God, he is one. 
Lord our God is omnipotent, the Lord our 